Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Today, like you said, we are finishing our Being the Church series, and in order to get into the final kind of chapter of what we're doing here, I'm just going to read from uh, Titus chapter 3, and then we'll jump into it. So the scripture says this in Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. Okay, we are closing down this letter. Paul writes a letter to Titus. Titus is organizing the church on the Greek Isle of Crete, and, and this is how it kind of closes. When you close a letter to somebody, if you've written a longer letter, that's a longer letter. If you write a long letter to somebody, you kind of summarize and reiterate and kind of drive home the point at the end. And that's what Paul is doing For Titus, he's kind of going, hey, in summary, here's what I've just told you. Let me tell you again. Verse 1, be ready for every good work. Verse 2 and 3, beware of some bad works, some bad behaviors. Then verse 8, devote yourself to good works. And verse 10 and 11, but beware of people who aren't doing good works. And so we, if we're not careful, we'll get the idea that this is a summary of a a book, of a, a letter about works. We'll get the idea that this is a, all about what you do or don't do, and that's not actually what's happening. In the middle, smashed in there as we read through it, you notice there was kind of like a grace sandwich happening. Verse 4, 5, 6, and 7 are all about why we do good works and where they're sourced. So let me explain that by explaining something else. For a couple of years, I've been kind of privileged to be able to spend uh, some retreat time Uh, at the headwaters of the Colorado River, um, 9,000 feet up in the Rocky Mountains. It looks, it's just this. And there's some people who've invited me and I get to go and I get to sit by this river and just sort of stare off in the distance. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, just incredible place. It's beautiful. It's rugged. There's moose and mountains. Um, the, The issue with being in this region, though, is you can't spend much time in that region without hearing of the looming crisis. So there's a water crisis on the Colorado River as in they're running out of water. And uh, let me put a map up of sort of the, this is what the Colorado River looks like. Starts up in uh, the upper basin there, and then it makes its way down and eventually empties out uh, in Mexico into uh, a little bay. But it's sort of like this big, long system 
that 4.5 million acres of farmland draw from the river. So water from where I'm sitting up in the mountains is used to irrigate 4.5 million acres of farmland. That's a lot of, a lot of acres. Also, 40 million human beings get their drinking water from the Colorado River. So like Phoenix, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, San Diego, major cities in the West are all drawing from this river. So as it starts up there in the mountains and the snow melts and it begins to make its way down towards the ocean, everywhere you look, there's somebody with a pipe draining off here. They're putting a dam up here. That's where the Hoover Dam is part of the system. So when you put a big wall up and the lake builds up behind it, then you can draw on that water. That's kind of how the whole system works. But when you spend time in this region, all you hear about is how this is a problem. It is all falling apart because there's too many people and not enough water. Well, why not? Where'd the water go? Well, the issue is snow. So when I'm sitting up in the mountains and I'm seeing these snow-capped mountains, that's where the water comes from. The Colorado River is just melted snow. And so as it snows on the Rockies, that water, that snow melts in the summer, makes its way into the river, and then slowly kind of replenishes itself. And this is the hydrological cycle. Hey, what did you learn at church today? I don't know, some like geology discussion? We don't even know what we're doing. I got a point, I promise. So what's happened is people are now uh, kind of freaking out, and they're trying to conserve everywhere they can. Uh, one of the friends I was at this retreat with this year is from San Diego, and he's like, yeah, we're, we're like hosed. Um, which was a pun I didn't mean to do. But he said, we're, um, we can't water our yard anymore. Like, they're coming with all these restrictions. We shower every two or three days, and even then we try to limit it to five minutes. Like, they're really, everybody's trying to conserve water downstream because they know they're running out. But ultimately, it isn't about that. Like, it doesn't matter how much he does of less watering or shorter showers, he can't put snow back in the mountains. Because ultimately, the story of the Colorado River comes back to the snowpack. It's central to everything. So, Dwayne, put this next one up. That's what it looks like uh, where there used to be lakes. That's a marina there. This is what lakes look like. They've dried up. No amount of, of, I'll take a shorter shower, refills the lake, does it? No amount of difference in behaviors or conservation strategies refills the lake. You can't refill the lake by taking less of what doesn't exist anymore. Go to the next slide. This is where we land. All right, this is, I made this. It's, you can tell I've made it. Um, I use my crayons, I put it together. But this is the picture. You have mountains and you have snow, and as it melts, it creates a river. The first two uses of this are farming and people. Farming and people, they're pulling, they're pulling, and pulling. And at the bottom, what you have is the two kind of drains on it. The big drains on it that they're trying to fix are we have drought on one hand and then we have misuse on another. Like maybe we shouldn't be using the desert southwest is our farming hub. Like, maybe that was a bad idea. So we're figuring that out. But this is kind of what the picture of that cycle looks like. And the reality is the livelihoods of everybody are really at the top. It has nothing to do with the drought or the misuse. That's, that's a, kind of a symptom or that's kind of a like, that doesn't change what's happening with the mountains. It doesn't change the level of snow. It doesn't change how much water the river wants to provide. Those are downstream effects, but the upstream is what matters. It's at the top that it matters. Every conservation strategy and drought alleviation measure is irrelevant to the snowpack. All that matters is the snow. So let's look at Paul's letter to Titus again. Let's go back to verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out, I like that language, on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. So let me talk about this for a second. Justified, what does this word mean? Justified by grace. That means declared righteous. God has declared us righteous. We were dragged, as we talked about in a recent week, we've been dragged to righteousness by his mercy. He took the punishment we deserved on the cross, and so we say, in dying, Jesus destroyed our death. And then he overcame the grave and offered that same resurrection power to all who might follow and believe, and so we say, in rising, he restored our life. And so the headwaters of our life is Jesus. If we go to the next one, this is what it looks like. It's just the snowpack reimagined. The headwaters of life is Jesus, and out of the headwaters of our life flow, according to Paul's letter to Titus, according to the scripture, out of Jesus and his grace and his mercy and his love for you, from there flows good mercy and obedience. That's, it's snowpack benefits and blesses farmers and people. It's grace overflows into the areas of good works and obedience. And we spend a lot of time on the bottom side. We spend a lot of time on bad behaviors and disobedience. And we go, if we just fix that, maybe that'll fix the problem I'm feeling in my life. But Paul says, Paul says, be careful with that idea. Be careful with focusing on this. The point of chapter 3 is in those verses we just read. It's in the fact that Jesus, not of your good works, not because you fixed the bottom downstream stuff, but because of the headwaters of your faith, Jesus Christ, that you have any hope at all. So we can talk about the drains at the bottom that are draining out of the bottom of, our, of the river of life, of the faith that we carry. We can talk about those, but we have to recognize, like Paul is saying, that the hope always comes back to the cross and the tomb. The hope of our faith always comes back to Jesus, and when we get off track, it's a really clever little thing that the enemy will do is make your—it'll flip this. It'll flip the little chart. It'll say it all starts with your behavior. The enemy will tell you, it all starts with your behavior. It all starts with your habits. It all starts with your obedience. And if you can get that right, then somewhere down the trail, you'll find Jesus. And Paul says, that's not it at all. It starts with Jesus. And if you root yourself in Jesus, if you're sourced in Jesus, if he is the headwaters of your life, then somewhere down the trail, you begin to experience greater obedience as you're sourced in him because he doesn't run out. Just like conservation measures by cities and people can't put snow back on the mountains, correcting your bad behavior or filling up on good works won't earn salvation. So to focus on behavior is like this really clever red herring from the enemy. And what we do when we focus on behavior is we build a really nice religious system that doesn't lead anywhere but to more religious systems. The story of humanity and all it entails comes out of the outflow of Jesus. Everything that we are as God's people is the outflow of Jesus. That's where it's all coming from. So Paul juxtaposes obedience and disobedience in this chapter. Obedience and disobedience. Obedience and disobedience. Obedience is good. Disobedience is bad. We agree. But both, if we're not careful, we won't recognize it. Both are outflows of trust. Obedience and disobedience are simply outflows of trust our culture is not big on obedience. It runs counter to independence. But it really is an outflow of trust. If I am obedient to someone who is in authority over me, it means I trust them. If I'm disobedient, it means I don't trust them. Preppers became a thing in recent years. There's shows about preppers. Everybody's preppers. 
you know what a prepper is. You've got canned food in your basement for 50 years, ammunition hidden in the walls, liquor in the ceiling to use as currency when the whole system breaks down. Some of you were getting a little nervous, like, how does he know about it? <laughs> Deal with it. What makes, a, what makes someone go into, like, this kind of deep level of preparation for the end of our society? It's a, it's a deep distrust of government in our system, isn't it? When the system breaks down, so this person, no judgment here, do what you want to do, this person will go off the grid, will begin to do prepper things, cane and peaches all summer, I don't know, they stop paying taxes, they don't register weapons, maybe they join a militia, whatever. They're preparing to do certain things, and it begins to be active civil disobedience against the government. Why? I don't trust the government. So the disobedience is rooted in a distrust. All disobedience is rooted in distrust. Parents, we need to hear that. All disobedience is rooted in distrust. So some of those who would trust Jesus with their lives, we would say that there should be obedience as the evidence of that trust. If you trust Jesus with your life, there should be obedience as evidence of that trust. If there's disobedience in your life, that is an evidence that there is an area of distrust in your life with Jesus. You know what? I'll give Jesus this area, this area, this area, but that one's off limits. I don't know why he thinks he has access to that. Well, guess what you're going to see is probably obedience and obedience and obedience and some disobedience. Why? Because I don't trust him with this area of my life. I don't trust him with my marriage. I don't trust him with my finances. Whatever it is, where we find disobedience, we can always trace it to distrust. Where we struggle, where we feel stuck in sin, where we're bound by habits we want to leave, where we are in spiritual drought, where we're dried up like that lake bed that just has nothing going on. The fix is not becoming more obedient, right? We, so we go to a place and we go, well, I got to fix the, the behavior. I got to get more obedient. Then that'll, that'll figure it out. The fix is never in that. The fix is in more Jesus. I got to go back to the headwaters. I got to get the fix is more Jesus. The fix is trust in him. The fix is learning to give him my whole self. More of him, more reliance on his work, not my work. More reliance on his crucifixion and resurrection. More hope in the source. And then we begin to see the outflow of obedience from there. But when we attempt to course correct just on behavior, we end up falling short and getting frustrated and wondering why there's no, there's no water coming out of the tap of our spiritual life. Paul is rooting everything in Christ and the work of Christ. He is reminding the local church to do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing. Absolutely. Don't do dumb things. But he's also saying, remember, without Jesus, it's irrelevant Without Jesus, your behavior is irrelevant. It's just any other worthless religious system. Can't conserve water when the river is dry, so have fun with your behaviors if you're not rooted in Christ. He also says this thing about uh, foolish controversies and quarreling. He, says that, he tells us how to address that. How do you address when there's, within kind of the body, there's this kind of like these arguings and these quarrelings, and we kind of feel like it's throwing us off? What do we deal with bad behaviors? How do we deal with people who are divisive? How do we do that? Paul says there's a point where you need to recognize who the fool is and move on. That sounds a little harsh. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. If you uh, weren't here on May 8th, you can go to our website, go to May 8th sermon, go about 15 minutes in. We talked about this at length. What do you do with the fool in the room? 
can you call someone a fool? Um, Bible does. What do you do? How, what, what is a foolish person? What's an evil person? How do we deal with it? Where do we draw the line? What does a boundary look like? How do we do that? We talked about it. I'm not going to talk about it more. You can go back. But Paul is saying there's a time to move on. Warn them once, warn them twice, and then move on. And this gets more complicated for us in the social media age, doesn't it? Because you have all these passive voices that are allowed into your life if you're not careful. There are passive voices you're scrolling through and they just like roll a grenade through your timeline. You go, wait, what's that about? And all of a sudden you're feeling a thing that may not have been for you, but it's yours now. So sometimes silence is the best strategy. Sometimes you need to know when to mute and unfollow people. I deleted my Twitter, I don't know, five or six, seven years ago. Don't remember. And, and as somebody who likes to write, and if somebody offered me a, a contract to write for them and get paid for it, I would, okay, that sounds fun. I would love that. And the number one thing when you're trying to, to do more writing is they say, well, whatever you do, build your influence. Build your influence. Grow your social media because a company, a publishing company, will look at you and say, how many followers do you have? Because they know that there's a pretty good representation of how many people are going to buy your book. So I deleted my 3,800 Twitter followers, and they all went away. And knowing that the publisher's going to go, how many Twitter followers do you have? And I'm going to go, zero. That's my audience. So it kind of felt like a counterintuitive move, except that when I got in there, it was a cesspool. And every single voice coming at me was not contributing to my love of Jesus. It was contributing to the churn of my soul. So I have zero Twitter followers. And I have zero book publishing contracts. And you know what? I don't care. Because I'm after Jesus. I'm not after self. I'm after Jesus. I'm not after all the voices. I'm after Jesus. I'm not after the argument. I don't want to win the argument. I don't want to win the war. I'm after Jesus. And out of him will flow the good things in life. But we get so caught up and we're so afraid to kind of just pare back. And I'm not saying you need to go delete your social media. I'm saying you need to be careful about who you're listening to and the voices you allow in. Because back then you would go to your brother and be like, hey, we're just not going to talk anymore because you're divisive. And he'd go, what? And you'd go, see ya. And today, you have to mute and unfollow. You have to delete and deactivate. You have to go through all these other steps because voices find their way into your life through just the way we live. Some people are prone to creating foolish arguments by pointing out other people's foolish arguments. Stop doing that. That's a funny one. That's also social media. But sometimes silence is our best strategy. I would say it this way. Let foolish controversies and dissensions and quarrels die from a lack of oxygen. Just don't give it oxygen. It's a, it's a little, little fire. Just starve it of oxygen. Now, there are things you need to quarrel about. There's things you need to, to debate. Debate those things. Debate them in healthy ways in real time with real human beings face to face. Do that. That's great. But some things we need to just starve of oxygen. This works uh, personally as well. I have a friend of mine who I saw, I see once or twice a year. I saw him last year, 2021, and he said, hey, my marriage is in real trouble. Can you pray for me? So we're, we're talking about it and praying about it. I saw him again this year. I said, how's it going? And in 2021, he would say, look, it takes two to tango. We're, we're struggling together, but she's in a funk. Like it's a deep spiritual funk. It's a whole thing. And I keep trying to fix it and it's not going anywhere. So I asked him this year, is it any better? Did it, did it change? And he goes, it's like God did a miracle. It totally changed. We're so much better. It's maybe the best we've ever been. And I said, okay, what did you do? Like how, what did you do to fix it? And he said, I shut up. Some wives like, amen. He said, I shut up. He said, I stopped trying to be the Holy Spirit in her life. And I stopped pointing out every little thing that was unhealthy. And undistracted because I was no longer, uh, you know, leaning on her at every moment. 
she could now see her own foolishness and adjust. So she got super healthy, and as a result, it's incredible. We are into behavioral correction as a society. It's what we're into. So I think it's important if we think about it relationally, we think about it social media, we think about it in our culture, this is what we're after. We like to weaponize shame to change behavior, thinking it might change a heart. You guys heard about the Disney CEO. It's a little, I don't know if you know, Disney's a little company. They do a little thing, and there was a whole thing in Florida. And the Disney CEO, we're not talking about politics because I don't talk about politics. The Disney CEO said he's going to stay out of politics. And then some vocal employees of his said, no, you're not. And through shame, they shamed him into uh, leaning into politics and picking a side. But what's interesting to me is that the source of the CEO, the source never changed. He just did math. The source for Disney, as if we didn't know this two years ago, you know, cancel your Disney, do what you want. The source for Disney has been profit. They're not about the their magic kingdom, none of that, and kingdom of heaven, no chance. They're about profit. And, and they've always been about profit and making sure the share price goes up. That's what they've been about. And so when he's going to stay out of politics, that choice is based in his source, which is profit. My job as CEO is to make profit. And then when somebody says, hey, you're going to have a problem on your hands and you're going to have less profit if you don't do this. You're going to have more profit if you'll do that. They've shamed him through getting to his source, which is more profit, less profit, less pain, more pain. And how it turns out for them, I don't really know. I don't really care. But the, the reality is his source never changed. The CEO's source was always about his job as CEO is to increase shareholder value. That's the job. And so the lever that was pushed is people just pushed that lever a little bit. They just got back to his source. Aiming at behaviors is the wrong track, though. It didn't change his heart. What he believes, we didn't know back then, and we don't know now. But what we know to be true is you don't change the heart through behaviors, you change the behaviors through the source. So what Paul is saying to you and to me, what Paul is saying to the the church gathered, is that the headwaters of your life is in Jesus. And so from faith and trust in Jesus, we enter into that river of grace and mercy. And once we're in the flow of grace and mercy, then we find ourselves with the security of salvation. And once we have the security of salvation, we find ourselves in the overflow of the good works and righteous living. it's, It's a river system. Once you're rooted in who Jesus is, you have the security to live out who he's called you to be. I would say it this way to really bring it all to a point. Your source determines your direction. Really simply. Your source determines your direction. It it isn't the other way around. Some of you are still feeling foggy or dried up in this. Some of you are still feeling like, you know what, I love Jesus, but I still feel pretty stuck. I still feel pretty dry spiritually, and I love Jesus, so what's wrong with me? Paul would offer you another angle to consider. Paul would ask you, where's your hope? And your eyes on hope, where's your hope? through this season or through this life? Because he said in verse 7, justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Meaning this. Guys, we have eternal life now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have eternal life now. Death is no longer in your future. But the enjoyment of that eternity is limited while you are on earth. Because you're still surrounded by brokenness. You're still living in this kind of broken stream with droughts and mist. You're still living in that. And so while we're still here as broken vessels, as we're still here living in this broken world, our enjoyment of eternity is limited. 
Our hope, though, Paul says, is in the inheritance of that eternal life. So we don't have to be downcast even in the darkness of today because we have a hope in what comes tomorrow. We have a hope in the promise of an eternity. Said it this way, if you were living paycheck to paycheck right now, you're really struggling financially and you're going, oh man, I just, every day I'm wondering if today's the day they're going to cut my power off. That's you. If you were living that way, but then you knew that your uncle had 10 million bucks set aside for you and that was your inheritance. Your rich uncle said, you got $10 million coming your way. It would change your perspective on living paycheck to paycheck. In the moment, your despair about I am poor and always going to be poor would be different because you go, I am poor right now and I'm struggling, but I got this inheritance coming and this is not my forever. It would change everything about the way you felt in the moment. It would change your outlook on money. Even in the struggle, you wouldn't despair. Rooted in the hope of that inheritance, you would be freed from the financial stress of today because eventually it's all going to work itself out. Grace and the hope of eternity frees you from the despair that comes with the trials of today. It doesn't mean it's not still hard. It doesn't mean you won't still struggle. It means that God has invited you to put your hope in something greater, knowing that even the greatest struggle of today has a resolution that's promised and coming. Those possessing this grace can fully devote themselves to life in him then to the joy of good works even when it's hard. So we go back to the graphic one more time. You were either living sourced in Jesus, or I would say if you wrote self at the bottom, you could do that. You were either sourced in Jesus and living from a top-down, Jesus-fed life, or you're sourced in self and trying to work your way up. Top-down, your security is in him alone, and his works, and his perfect life, and his sacrificial death, and that justifies you and brings you to wholeness. Bottom-up is rooted in your insecurity— which then motivates you and in your imperfection to start building a life and a ladder to try to reach God. But that's not what Scripture lays out. Scripture says it is a top-down life, and if you'll just lean into it, if you'll just acknowledge it, if you'll just be there, you'll find the fullness of the overflow. You either live exhausted, managing sin, doing conservation work on the back end, trying to get good enough to refill the top, or you live at rest, overflowing from the good works and the inexhaustible grace of Christ. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you came in with. I don't know what you're struggling with, but I do know that your source determines your direction, and that is a choice you have today. Where are you sourced, and where will you be sourced in the season to come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, grateful that you didn't rely on us and our works, didn't rely on our perfection or our sin management tactics But Father, you chose to save us through Jesus. You chose to uh, renew us and make us righteous through him, to see us through the prism of Jesus. Father, thank you for the grace and what that means in our lives and the freedom it gives us to chase you and live for you. Father, for those in the room who are struggling and, and feeling dried up, Lord, I pray that you would renew them and you would bring them back to the source, that you would give them the hope of heaven so that the struggle of today wouldn't overwhelm. Lord, in all things, uh, you are maker and you are creator and you are justifier and you are our hope. And so root us back in you. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.